My name is uh, Bill, um, teaching pastor here at Bethel Christian Church. Been away for a little bit, and as I say, it's, uh, it's a fine balance between being away long enough where people miss you, but not too long where they realize they can get along just fine without you. So he's trying to snake it right in there. Um, be that as it may. Uh, normally we would have, or I would have, a text for you to follow along with, uh, pilot error, so we're not going to have that today. So if you could grab your Bibles, those uh, box-like objects in front of you, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 18, looking at the first six verses. Now the title of this is, Like Water to a Fish. Uh, you probably heard the phrase, like a fish out of water. Well, if you try to explain what is water to a fish, it's kind of stupid because fish really, I mean, they, they aren't going to understand you. They're fish. But if you could, they still wouldn't understand you because it's everywhere. All they've known is water. It's literally the air they breathe. And the only way they're going to understand that is when they're taken out of it. And you see how a fish reacts. There are things in our lives that have always been there, been there in everyone else's lives, been there in our families, in our culture, and they're, they're so ubiquitous, so everywhere, so ever-present, we don't really see them, they're just a part of our lives. Now, growing up in, in our families, we learn the family values. It doesn't take a child too long to quickly learn what are the spoken rules in that family, what you do, what you don't do, do as I say, not as I do, and the unspoken rules as well. And so we morph accordingly to be the people that we're safe being or supposed to be or living in others' expectations. We learn in life as we get older, what are the true values? What are the power centers? What gets things done? What do people look toward and look for? And we set our sights accordingly. We learn how to be noticed, how to attract, how to influence, and we set our course accordingly. Anyone here could still feel the sting, whatever it is, of feeling looked down upon, of insignificance, of not measuring up to somebody else's expectations, or not having whatever it is that others do. And yet, in coming to Christ it is like water to a fish. We import the same values into the church, into our relationships, into our expectations. And it's just the way things are. We don't necessarily realize this is, these are one of the things uh, for which Christ came to free us. We compare, we judge, we get noticed, we wield influence just like the world. We use the same corridors of power to affect change in this world in our own strength, rather than relying on the unlimited power of God. I think the only thing more nauseating than celebrity is Christian celebrity, because we should know better. What we're going to be looking at today is very simple truth. Living for God should liberate us rather than confine us. Living for God should liberate us rather than confine us. Now, we're going to be looking at Matthew uh, 18. going to set up the context a bit, jumping right in. Uh, this is just after what's called the transfiguration. This is where Jesus kind of gives the rest of the story or, or a bigger picture uh, to this trusted inner circle. So the disciples are there, and he takes Peter, James, and John up to a, to a mountain has a power lunch with uh, Moses and Elijah. Uh, two figures in the Old Testament that really spoke of who the Christ is, if you will, the law, the prophets, all of God's revelation, the full revelation in Christ. And, and they see this sort of gleaming image and they're terrified. And, and as we looked at before, last time God was speaking from a mountain, if you touch the mountain, you're going to be killed. This one ends with them cowering in terror and God touching them. Okay, there's something more going on here. They, they come down from that. There's... Uh, this failure to drive out a demon from the rest of the disciples there. A uh, number of stories. And the, the story immediately before this section is uh, having to pay the temple tax. And so uh, the uh, gatekeepers, the rule um, enforcers of the church come and they say, Jesus, uh, 
why, why, don't, why aren't you paying the temple tax? Every Jewish man's got to pay this. Why don't you pay it? And so he asks this question. He says, uh, do the, the kings of this world, do they collect their duty from their subjects or from their family? You know, from their subjects. Well, are their families exempt? Why, yes, they are. Well, who are we in the kingdom of God? Are we subjects or are we family? But so that nobody gets their feathers ruffled, their knickers in a twist or whatnot, we're going to pay the temple tax anyway, even though we shouldn't. We're family. And how poor is Jesus that in order to pay this, this four drachma tax for him and Peter, uh, he's got to summon a fish and a, have a coin in his mouth. It's pretty poor. But he, he, there's this miracle of uh, Peter going and catching a fish and opens up his mouth and shakes out you know, God's change purse. And here, here's the money. Just a quick side note here. Uh, the temple tax comes from Exodus uh, thirty fourteen, and it was they're going into the they're kind of going into the promised land, cross over the Jordan. They said every male over the age of twenty must hereafter pay this tax once a year for the upkeep of the yada 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 yada. Right? Only Peter and Jesus, of all the disciples, were required to pay the temple tax. Every male 20 years and older must pay the tax. What does this tell us? That 11 of the disciples were teenagers. I'd like everyone between the ages of 13 and 19 to stand. You still can. You have cartilage. Come on. It's not not hard, right? I'm jealous. Guys, look around. This is... This would be the age group of the disciples. We picture them as having beards and kind of gnarled and Peter being this, this, this old grizzled Hagrid kind of guy. And we, we, we have these sort of different images. Teenagers. Thanks. Thanks. We don't really think of it that way. But that's the reality. Did a pretty good job of turning the world upside down with these knuckleheads. Back to the task. Matthew 18, verse 1. If the Bible that you're holding in your hand is the only Bible you have, it is now yours. Please take it. It's cool to steal from church. (laughs) But only if you read it. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, at that time connects it, that that phrase just sort of connects it to the story right before paying the temple tax. So something happened that kind of got them worked up. So he heard about, well, the subjects of the king, they must pay their tax. But we're family in the new kingdom. So we're kind of higher up. There's a status thing going on here. Now, Jesus, up to this time, had, had been predicting his death. Remember, we had looked at in the Gospel of Mark, there was this, this deliberate arc just before the transfiguration. Uh, and um, it was when Jesus was kind of resolutely going to Jerusalem. Hey, guys, uh, ministry, kingdom, it's not all um, cupcakes and cookouts and, and, and just fun and games. Uh, it's sacrifice. It's serious. It's getting real. And I'm paving the way for you, okay? It's going to get rough. And so they're starting to say, man, he's, he's not going to be with us much longer. He's, he's pretty serious about this, this dying thing. So who's going to replace him? Uh, the, what the, the um, actual text there says, it's which one of us is greater. Uh, and, and often they'll, they'll use the, the, this comparative to mean uh, actually who's, who's the best of everyone. And so they wanted to know who's the disciple that's gotten noticed. Who's the one that's really gotten good marks, that's measured up, that's kind of Jesus's sort of special cabana boy. Um, and, and so maybe it's Peter. I mean, he, he had to pay the tax. He's older. He's the oldest of the disciples. And, well, Peter, James, and John, they're always getting dragged away with Jesus. They're kind of special. Um, we kind of messed up when they were gone. But, but, but Jesus, I've been doing this. And, and I learned this. And I didn't complain like him. And, and this question just keeps coming up over and over again. Uh, we, we have James and John called sons of thunder because they're always just getting thrown down, getting in fistfights all the time. And they just have this, this short fuse. And um, they're always asking that question. Which one of us is the greatest? Do you see what I did? Look, look at me. And if it wasn't them, it was their mom. Guys, you should be further by now. The Lowensteins, they're junior partners at the rabbinical firm. Come on. So she goes, and Jesus, which one of my sons? And 
when you write your comments. Remember, sophomoric has that extra O in it. Um, maybe it was a family thing. Maybe it was just drive and ambition. Maybe it was comparing with others. But this question was there even at the Last Supper. Jesus is predicting his death. He's serving them. He strips off his clothes, washes donkey poop in between the toes of the disciples' feet. He's just absolutely turning their understanding upside down. And again, they ask, yeah, yeah, okay, that's cool, Jesus, but just so we're clear, which one of us is the greatest again? Jesus is like, really, God? This is the plan? All right, I'll go with it. Not the first, not the last. Verse 2. He called a little child to him, placed the child among them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he introduces this literally with this phrase, Amen, I say to you. And, and whenever this Amen, it's translated, if you're a King, King James person, verily I say unto thee. Or, or many of your versions will have truly. Or, or this is a true statement. It's a lot stronger than that. It's, guys, this is absolutely mission critical and you need to get this. Okay, if you're a little fuzzy on the other things, fine, that'll come in time. Get this. And, and what God is saying to us when we read this is, hey guys, spoiler alert, this is going to be on the final. Okay, so you, you better know this. Learn it, live it, love it. Okay, I'm, I, I'm giving you the cheat sheet right here. Listen up. Now, we've heard this verse, um, if we've been around church or, or, or Christians, um, this phrase gets thrown about quite a bit, and there's a fair amount of misunderstanding. So, so before we look at what this does mean, it might be helpful to look at what this does not mean. This doesn't mean that we must have a childlike faith, that there's this innocent, trusting, accepting, believing faith. It does not mean that. Okay, we're going to see why in just a bit. There's this phrase, the Bible said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Okay, I get the heart behind that. But it, the kingdom of God is never, ever, ever that simple. I had a colleague who was uh, called up by one of, uh, one of his um, congregants. Um, and it was a woman, and she was really distraught. And she's saying, my, my husband wants me to do these really horrible, sinful things. And, and it, was, it was really dark. It was really ugly. One of them involved her being raped for, for his pleasure. And the guy was seriously twisted in the head. But she was conflicted because she said, but the Bible says wives are to submit to their husbands in all things. That's what the Bible says. I believe it, so doesn't that settle it? What the Bible says and what the Bible means is all the difference in the world. Joseph Stalin memorized the entire book of Matthew. Do you know that? How many people have memorized the entire book of Matthew? Anyone? Not me. I'm so glad he did that. That must have really made a difference in his life. I mean, can you imagine if he hadn't memorized the book of Matthew? I mean, how many... He probably would have gone into the hundred millions of deaths rather than just this paltry 70 million of his own countrymen. He had murdered. When Jesus sent people out, we'll read this, look at this in Matthew 10. He told them this, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Innocent in matters of good and evil, but absolutely discerning, pressing, wrestling, asking the difficult questions. What does this mean? What do we do? How do we apply this? How does the world work? He's saying the people in this world have a lot higher horse sense and IQ than a lot of Christians. And so he's saying, guys, seriously, the simple part, that's good and evil. Real clear on that. Abhor what is evil, clean to what is good. Let love be without hypocrisy. But when it comes to our dealing and understanding a lot more complicated. Paul tells the church at Corinth who, let's just say they were, they were somewhat immature in their faith. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned as a child, but when I became an adult, I put away childish things. And he's saying, look, there's an appropriate stage of development for childlike thinking. But that's not our goal. That's where we begin. And likewise with faith, when we come to faith, it is simple. It really is. This is the word of God revealed to me in my heart. I believe it. That settles it. It's not whether I feel I'm forgiven. It's because of the power of God in Christ that has forgiven me. 
But that's where we begin. That is not our goal. That's not where we end up. There's an article. It was written in the um, New York Times. It was picked up on CNN, actually. Why millennials are leaving the church. And so people of the millennial generation, why they have a hard time with evangelical Christianity. That's this place, by the way. Said it came down to really, it doesn't matter anywhere in the States, but especially in cities, it came down to four challenges that were deal breakers. An anti-intellectual bias. That, that in the church, people feel that if you've got to cut on the dotted line around the neck, if you're a Christian, not use your brain anymore. How does science and the Bible, how do they integrate? Well, how do they? It's a big deal if it's, well, I just have to close my eyes to all reality and pretend. Because that doesn't work. Is the church a safe place to discuss doubt and struggles? Is it okay not to be okay? Because none of us are. We all have trouble admitting it. I walk with a limp as a leader so others may catch up. Our approach to sexuality tends to be a list of do's and don'ts. It's restrictive, it's confining. Rather than dealing with reality, what's actually going on, where we actually are, who we actually are, and allowing the power of God to integrate all of that. And the fourth one is having to choose between personal holiness and social justice and compassion. They are literally two sides of the same coin, but we divide them up one or the other. These are huge, huge challenges. And a lot of it stems from this simple, childlike, childish faith of this is the way it is and we freeze everything in time and we're the bulwark of truth and the world can change, but but we're not going to budge. Rather than the church is a living organism, is the pillar of truth, but we need to be out and adjusting to absolutely everything. What does the word of truth, what does the power of God look like in addressing all of this? Because God loves all of us and every one of us and is transforming every single bit. We leave nothing at the door. So the gospel is very easy to understand. We've all been separated from our creator by what we've done. Our rebellion going our own way. His perfection requires punishment. Requires the same thing we cry out for others when we're wronged. And it's a debt none of us can pay. But God in his love has made a way for every single one of us. Whatever we say about the unfairness of this world, he took it upon himself. Gospel is super, super easy. Jesus took my place. But God isn't easy to understand at all. Walking with him, being transformed into his image, it's nuanced, it's frustrating, it's difficult, it's a long obedience in the same direction. How well do we understand our lovers? And for those of you wondering why I referred to uh, the others in our life as lovers, that's how God refers to us many times. Go to Hosea 2 for starters. We don't understand those closest to us. How are we going to understand God? We're not. Have you ever wrestled with God's silence when you're grieving, when there are no answers that satisfy There are no simple answers. Simple answers hurt. Have you ever wrestled with God's discipline? That's not easy. Because we wrestle with our hearts. Have you ever wrestled with God's forgiveness? Because it's absolute and it requires us to forgive everyone. Especially ourselves. Not as straightforward as we thought. So what does this mean if it doesn't mean this childlike, simplistic faith? In the Hebrew world of first century Palestine, there was a very, very different pecking order than what we know and appreciate now. We live sort of in a kidocracy. You look at Nick or Disney or or, or whatnot. I I used to um, traffic in that more as our kids were younger, not so much now. But it's all about kids, and and parents are kind of doofuses and it's just it, it's a kid-centered world uh, a lot of marketing and demographics it's all about kids it's and, and there's a lot of good with that as well as a lot of, of unhealth but the world then was very very different kids did not exist they were invisible see this is the pecking order in first century um, Hebrew culture in, in Palestine first you had men and they were arranged from the oldest to the youngest 
And then you had, who's next? Anyone? First you have men, Jewish men, who's next in the, in the pecking order? Not women. Slaves. Male slaves were next. Male slaves could own property. Uh, it wasn't the type of slavery that we would look at it, you know, you know, um, Annie Bell himself, Jim Crow, very, very different. This was, or earlier, this was, um, yeah, there was a lot more freedom. And so male slaves had more, uh, were afforded more status than women. Then next were Jewish women, from, from oldest to youngest, female slaves, and then kids. Look at the Old Testament. How much deals with kids? A commandment, a little deeper than that. A few other things. Slaves get a lot more treatment. Property gets a whole lot more treatment. Kids don't exist. Because the law was a cultural embodiment of God's heart where the people were at the time. Okay, it's how do we do life in the world in which we live and how do we flesh out God's oneness, God's holiness, God's heart rather than the checklist. Kids couldn't contribute financially. They had no rights. They were worth less than property. And so they were invisible. They just ask about who is the greatest. And so Jesus takes the most insignificant person they could imagine. He didn't choose a slave. He didn't choose a foreigner. He chose a kid. Had him stand right in the middle of him. Imagine this scene. So this little kid standing there, these adults, you know, teenagers, probably growth spurt already, looming over him. So you have the disciples who are jockeying for position. Hey, look at me. You have these hangers-on and followers and groupies and, you know, the status people that are, are following Jesus, probably about 150 at this time, probably a little less. This is after John 6. And, and so they're all, hey, Jesus, is this the way we do it? Look at me. You had the bustle of the um, surrounding area. Where, where you had merchants, you had tradespeople who had skills, you had Pharisees who commanded respect, you had soldiers who were hated but wielded power. You had people trying to impress, you know, suitors and whatnot, you know, putting this, you know, suck in that gut and put out the chest. Everybody's playing games and preening and whatnot. It's all about status. Have you updated your status yet? Hold on. <laughs> Sucking at sermon builders. Okay, good. So, you know. Keep it out there. And he says this, unless you change and become as one of these children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say you're missing out. He didn't say uh, it's going to be difficult for you. He said you're out. You were never in in the first place. Your heart has not been changed. Now, the King James translation, in yes, unless ye be converted, it's a little harsh. So that's not the, the, the word for total conversion. But it's not the word for just Change or turn. It's return to. Go back. You started out having no status. You got to go back there. You got to go back to no status. You must take the social, relational, spiritual position of a child. How can I say this? I can't. Jesus said that. Next verse, four. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, um, some, some translations that you might be familiar with uh, uh, say, unless you are as humble as this child. That's not a good translation. The, the word, when it's used as an adjective, it always means humble. Okay, a humble in a mental attitude. Aw, oh, shucks, not me. I can't do this. So you're going to be humble and, yeah, I'll just, you know, do what I can. Okay, that's fine. That's what it means. But this is a verb. And every time this word is used as a verb, it's humble yourself, humiliate yourself, bring yourself down low. Don't be noticed. Don't stand out. Don't have others see you. Keep your mouth shut because God's watching. And so he's saying you must take on the unstatus of children. You must humiliate yourself. But I've gained this experience and I have these skills and I can do this and offer and this is who I am, God. And this is the value I bring to you. He's saying, I don't care. Do I need that? No. I want you. And I can't see you with all this stuff that you're clinging on to. I said, take my hand. It's kind of hard when you're holding on to this stuff. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest. Which one's more difficult, to think humbly of yourself or to take a lesser status before others? Lesser status is where the money is. shows the true nature of our heart. 
Because we can think that we think whatever we want. Oh, I'm a humble person. It's my greatest attribute, being humble. (laughs) But living it out, we all want to. We might agree this is the way to go. But as long as somebody sees me being humble, it's worth it. Well, somebody does see you. Now, this teaching isn't directed at, at, at losing yourself, self-abnegation. It, it's not this sense of, oh, I'm nothing and I suck and it's all Jesus and it's not me. Okay, there's already a Jesus, all right? We don't need to replicate that. We replicate his life through us. And so it isn't this sort of Eastern philosophy version of I'm just going to completely lose all desire. A Buddhist monk walks up to a hot dog vendor in New York and says, make me one with everything. Okay. <laughs> anyway... Um, It's not about losing, uh, about using our ability or losing our abilities or our resources or opportunities, but it's how others see us and the reason for which we're using them. It's all about status and taking a status that's uncomfortable. See, God's value system runs against the grain of this world, society, our peers, our heroes. Was God serious about this first and last stuff? Whatever we think about how serious he was, he did it first. Who, although existing as God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, to be manipulated for his own advantage. But he humbled himself, same word, verb here, humiliated himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in appearance as sinful man. And he was obedient even to death, the worst possible death you could ever imagine, one only reserved for rebels and traitors and insurrectionists, one who Roman citizens were exempt from. He was even obedient to death on a cross. And he left us an example that we would follow in his stead. True discipleship requires the eradication of all that we wield for our own advantage. Without rights, without a position to leverage, without power to sway others. Not having earned anything, not above anything, and certainly not above anyone. The first are to be last. Looking at verse 5. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now remember, child here means the least of. Those that we don't see, those that we look down upon, those that we would not want to associate with, those that we don't understand, those that sin in a different way than we do or maybe too close to home. That's a child. It's the least of these. The last are to be first. In Luke's paraphrase of the Sermon on the Mount, the ethical teachings of Jesus, puts it this way. Jesus is saying, if you love others who love you, What credit is that? Everyone does that. Even sinners, even those who are as far away from God in terms of lifestyle. We all sin, but but who adopted it. This This is the flag I live under. Even sinners love those who love them. It's called stimulus response. Amoebas do that, guys. Even if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to those uh, without any expectation to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. You will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father in Heaven is merciful. Keep your mouth shut and practically love and serve those who are less fortunate than you. It's a lot of people. Why do we do this? Well, we're commanded. But if that's not enough, and for me sometimes it's not enough, we need to for ourselves. It's the only way we're going to know what we're really holding on to, how we really value ourselves, how we see ourselves in others' eyes and ultimately in God's eyes. When we give away what's most dear to us to others who don't deserve it, but neither do we when we give our money, when we give our time, when we give our emotional energy, when we give our friendship, when we give our lives. It's how we actually love Jesus. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, in name, people would be welcomed in the name of a prophet. It's they had all the authority, all the status. It was as though that prophet was there in person and they got the same treatment. And so it is saying that the person that we have the most difficulty with, you shouldn't be here I don't know what to do with you. 
the one who treats them as Jesus, that's how we practically love him. Matthew 25 lays it out. The judgment is simply based on this. Do we have a referral slip from the poor, from the marginalized, from the voiceless? Which we're not getting into heaven without one. Now, this is not work salvation, but this is faith lived out. If it's real, it's going to be manifest where God's heart is, and this is where God's heart is. What you did or didn't do to the least of these, I take it personally because you're looking at me in the eyes and doing the exact same thing. This is difficult for all of us. But this is pure discipleship. This is real-time rendering of our hearts before God, where we really are, what is real, what isn't. So we're not going to be surprised. But God, didn't I do this and do that? And hey, look at me. And I, had all, uh, uh, I don't want to be there. Finally, Verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. The word millstone is the biggest one they had that a donkey had to pull. In other words, it's irrevocable. Depths of the sea is this horrible, scary place for Hebrews. Millstone, you're not getting out of that. You're going down. It is over. There is no court of appeals, no second chance. So God's saying, hey, look, guys, I'm not playing here. I'm not playing. When you harm those who you don't see, who you look down upon, who you think aren't worthy, don't measure up, you're doing it to me. And there's going to be a reckoning. Maybe it's an individual who's done you wrong and you can't get over it. You despise him. Maybe it's a type of believer, legalistic believer, liberal believer, conservative, progressive, whatever it is. There's a certain type that just gets to you. Maybe it's someone's lifestyle choices. Maybe it's somebody's appearance. They're not like you. Maybe it's a secret checklist of criteria that not even God can measure up to. I don't know what it is, but we all have our lists. We all have our people. We all have our Dalits, our untouchables. Another name for them is Christ. Someone says they're a believer. Who are we to judge? I think Calvin did have it right. Accept all professing believers, but look for and encourage fruit. In other words, we want the best for them. And if we are convinced that this is true, this is right, this is, this is what people need to know, the Holy Spirit is going to convict of sin. If we can talk someone into something, someone's going to talk them out. We've got to let the Holy Spirit work and not get in the way. And if we genuinely love this person, if we're genuinely working on our own stuff, guess what? God might even use you in the process because he does work through means. But it's in loving one another we're able to challenge one another. God is not playing. Read Matthew 23 if you don't believe me. The gospel is good news for the unbeliever seeking God. It's the greatest news you will ever hear, the greatest news we can ever share. But the longer we walk with Christ, the more the gospel has the potential to be bad news because it gets in the way of the rest of our lives, because it requires more surrender, more of us than we ever thought. And that's difficult. We continue to be reset to our factory settings, which is all about us. I'll close with this example. You ever see those commercials messing with um, Sasquatch? I just love that. You know what's even better than messing with Sasquatch? Messing with a raccoon. Because they're the cutest, most furry creatures, but once they grow into adults, they're just satanic killing machines. Uh, there's just this switch that happens. It's like raccoon puberty, or I, I, I don't know. Something ha- and they've got, they've got bandit masks on. I mean, come on. They're, they're, you know, caveat emptor. You've got no one but yourself to blame. Well, two things you can do to mess with raccoons. One of them is give them a sugar cube. Because raccoons, they're really fastidious. They're like... like OCD hyper-compulsive cleaners, and they've got to wash everything before they eat it. So you give them a sugar cube, and they go washing it, and the sugar cube's gone. And, and you give them another sugar cube, and they wash it, and it dissolves. It's just hilarious. But the other way you can mess with them is you put a shiny object in a bottle. They can't resist the shiny object. Now, once a raccoon grabs hold of something that they believe is valuable, they will never let go. And 
if you can just get your paw into the opening of a bottle and then you make a fist. Now my hand, you know, I've got little girly hands here that's not working to demonstrate it, but um, your, your hand's bigger now and you can't get it out of the bottle. And this raccoon is dragging this bottle around with his bottle cap or whatever you have in there. <laughs> And will never let go. There can be a wolf chasing the raccoon. and ah, 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 Because this, I need this. I have this now. If I let go of it, I may never get it again. I'm not letting go. Unto death. Just like each one of us. When we hold on to status. When we hold on to our rights. When we hold on to our need to be Right. When we hold on to power to leverage over others, we're like the raccoon in the bottle. Christ has come to set us free from this. He has come to liberate us from having to be in control, having to need to be right, having to pass judgment. Liberate it from having earned rights in churchly experience or hipness or, or, or abilities or, or, or pedigree or any of these things. Liberated from managing others' lives and avoiding our own. See, we can't get to heaven holding on to value and rights here on earth. And moreover, it's only when we have empty hands that God is able to fill them. Take us by the hand. Lead us way beyond where we ever thought we could go. Let's pray. Father, your word teaches us where the spirit of Christ is, there is liberty. Freedom to love, freedom to be the very people you have made us to be in whom you delight. I pray, Lord, for each of us that you would help us to wrestle well with our own hearts that regardless of anything else people could and would and will say about us, individually and collectively, one of them would be they love well. I've heard a lot about this Christ, but when I see them, I actually see Him. Whatever is getting in the way, whatever is holding us down, whatever is, has gravity that is pulling us away from you with misplaced values, misplaced rights, misplaced sense of worth in your eyes, God, would you open our eyes? Would you cleanse us? Would we feel that weight lifted from us? And I thank you, Father, that you've given us the simple, most practical way of doing this. Loving the least of these is loving you the most. I'd like to invite our deacons forward as we celebrate and move right into celebrating communion. We are the body of Christ. We are the ones God has chosen to best represent Him along with fellowships throughout the city, throughout the world, to show the world Jesus. And it's only possible because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's not our wisdom, it's not our abilities, it's not our programs, it's not getting things right. These are all important and they all have their place, okay? But there is a, no comparison to who we are in Christ first and foremost. Set free to love truly, to love fully. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because He paid the price fully all we have ever done, all we are doing, all we will ever do has been removed in Christ. That is the reality for all who trust in Him. And we celebrate that by way of reminder. The cost of His love of our freedom, the depths to which He would go to exercise the heights of His love for us, now, if you're new, if you're checking out faith, there's nothing necessarily mystical or freaky about this. Just let it pass. Or maybe you are wrestling well or not wrestling well and you need to let this pass. And that's fine as well. Again, it's between you and God. But what we celebrate together is simply the acknowledgement. We are all sinners saved by grace. We are all beggars who are finding a feast. And in hearts of gratitude... We want to remember always the cost, the love, 
hope that we have in Christ. I'm going to have the um, deacons distribute the elements. If you could just hold on to them and we'll all partake together. This is 
wasn't served uh, the communion elements who would like to take communion. The night that our Lord was betrayed, was handed over, took a loaf of bread, he gave thanks, he broke it. Looking at his disciples, he said, this is my body given for you. As often as you eat of this, you're doing this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ, the bread of heaven. blessing it and he said in this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many sins as often as you drink of this you're doing this in remembrance of me the blood of Christ the cup of salvation thank you father for your liberating grace for your mercy for your patience, for your forgiveness, that you never give up on us, that you are a God of second chances, you are a God of mercy, and you desire to unburden our hearts with the things yet we hold on to, not of you. We thank you for so great a salvation, for so great a Savior, and such perfect love bestowed upon us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please pass your cups to the center. We'll continue worshiping.
Awesome. You know what? Um, I'm going to go and try that raccoon sugar cube thing. Anybody else? Because I've got some in my backyard. I'm all over that. That's going to be sweet. And uh, don't you love that word picture of hanging on to that bottle? And uh, no matter what, even to the death. And how stupid is that? And so literally, good word picture for you today. You know, the Bible says, John 30, I think, verse 3, um, says, he, he must become greater, I must become less, right? And so whatever it is that, um, I don't know, pride, um, whatever it is that you need to let go of this week, that he may become less. I mean, that he may become more and we may become less. Um, let's take that to heart. Our whole purpose here on earth is to bring glory to God. Amen. And so let him work in and through you this week. Um, listen, if you need prayer today, we are all about praying with you. And so I'd like to invite our prayer counselors forward right now. They're going to come right over here. And uh, you can take as much time as you need, but we want to pray with you today. Also, if you, uh, I talked to some of you today even that, you know, have been coming a few weeks and you need to find out more about Bethel and how you can frankly get plugged in. It's time to get connected. And so go to the living room. It's back here in this corner in the lobby. And we'll spend 10, 15 minutes with you telling you about Bethel, Bethel and getting to know you as well. So anyway, love you guys and um, enjoy the gloomy weather. It's all good because God is good, right? Okay. Love you. Take care.